So welcome back to another episode of the Green Campus Podcast. My name is Neve, and this is our podcast where, where we talk to UCC students, staff and people from further afield about their environmental work and ways that we can come together to build a more sustainable and equitable place and planet for everyone. So today I'm joined by UCC's energy manager, Pat. Do you want to say hello? Hello, Neve. Thanks for coming on to talk to me. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, so I've known Pat for... A couple of years now through my undergrad with EnviroSoc and through work now with Green Campus. So it's nice to be able to pick your brain on the podcast. Or expose it. So first of all, we might just ask you to tell us about your kind of early career, yourself and kind of your role in UCC. Okay. Uh, way, way, way back, I, I started out as a marine engineer working in that uh, Dastley industry, the oil industry and oil tankers. So I've kind of got a, a full change from that. Uh, I went back in and done mechanical engineering and then I worked in the construction industry in the pharmaceutical. And then in 2008, I was employed as the facility manager at Tyndall National Institute, where I suppose the energy and sustainability bug really caught hold with the research that they were doing and what we were trying to achieve there. And then I was fortunate enough in 2016 to get the position of UCC's energy manager. Amazing. And for someone who say knows nothing about energy and energy in UCC. Could you tell us about what energy infrastructure we have and where our energy is coming from? Yeah, um, so from just from a size point of view, I suppose we're the equivalent of a town of maybe 12 and a half, 13,000 people. So for people in Cork, that's the town the size of a Balancholic is the equivalent energy footprint that we have. We consume in and around 57 gigawatts of energy. For those that don't know, that's a lot. <laughs> Um, and it costs just over about four million every year. We, our energy consumption is probably about sixty-five percent of it is electricity, and thirty-five percent is natural gas to use to heat our buildings. And under the climate action plans, we're on a big drive to increase increase the amount of uh, heat that we can derive from our electric electrical grid, such as heat pumps and things like that. We take power from the grid, and at the moment, that's kind of averaging in around thirty-three percent from a renewable intensity point of view. Um, we have previously used contracts such as 100% renewables, um, supplies and guarantees, and we're just currently out to tender for a new supply contract for the next three years. But given the market and, and, and given our grid infrastructure, it's really, really hard to guarantee those are from renewable sources. Internally, then, we, we have looked really, really hard at how we can generate our own electricity. We have a lot of roof spaces. We have a lot of grounds. We've got a lot of car parking facilities. Mm-hmm. But we've also got a huge demand. And we would kind of estimate that we would, you know, if we covered every roof that we have in the estate, we would probably meet maybe one and a half, two percent of our overall annual demand. So renewables isn't a solution for us. It's part of the solution. We've got over maybe 260, 270 PV panels across the estate. And under our climate action plan, we hope to triple that by 2030. So a lot has been changing and developing in UCC over the past few years. I do remember that there was a divestment from fossil fuels in UCC. What year was that? Do you remember? Uh, I think that was about 2018. 2018. And what did that involve? It was just kind of took a lot of their, any investments that UCC have were pulled out of, of fossil fuels. So they resp- they signed up to responsible uh, investment protocols. So every year they've got to submit a report as to where any money that UCC have invested, where that goes and that is not investing within the fossil industry. Yeah, it's great to have that transparency in UCC. Is that common practice now in universities across Ireland? Not really. I no. suppose universities typically in Ireland wouldn't have a huge uh, investment pot, not like the US. Um, it really has gained traction in the US. 
you know, the students and the college authorities have really come under pressure to disinvest the likes of Harvard and MIT and places like that. So every week you see some uh, university declaring that they're pulling out their really large funds out of uh, any any pension funds that invest in fossil fuels. So the movement is, is on, it's mm. happening. Um, and in the US and the UK where they have really vast resources, that's where having some impact. And in terms of recent developments as well, I know that a topic that has been everywhere is the, the energy crisis. How is that impacting how we, I suppose, source and, and use our energy in UCC? Yeah, so the government launched in October of last year, they launched a reducer use campaign. Um, and under that, they gave kind of a mandate to the public bodies to look at certain things. Um, and that include things like lighting. Very simple and a very effective instruction from the government. But we were able to kind of go back and re-challenge why we use lights. Are we using them for an aesthetic purposes? Are we using them from a security point of view? And the engineering service team with Chris Collins and, and the team up there, you know, they conducted a lot of nighttime audits. They got rid of a lot of unnecessary lighting that were maybe architecturally were nice, but didn't add anything to from a security point of view or from you know, no need for the lighting. So they switched all them off. You might have noticed as you walk across the quad, the building, the lights that used to light up the building, they're gone off. And they're only put on by exception, but the, the rule is that they don't run between five and seven when the grid is at its most. It's not a huge energy load from those lights, but it's just the optics and it's, you know this, this is what's required. We looked then at our temperatures, really, uh, really controversial. Um, so the government put in a, a request that we drop our temperatures to 19 degrees across all public uh, bodies. And we did that where we could, where we had the controls. So a lot of our buildings would be controlled by a, a central management system. So we're able to maintain 19 degrees, 19 and a half degree, relatively easily uh, through our control systems. In a lot of our buildings, we don't have any control. So the heating comes on in the morning and it goes off in the afternoon. Um, so we tried to manage the time schedules as best we could. And we were reviewing them daily, and we'd review the tickets that would come in from, you know, our customers about being cold, um, and we'd try to facilitate how we can make the spaces more comfortable, whether that's, you know, do the obvious things like seal up any leaks, you know, make sure the doors are closing properly and things like that. What it has done, more importantly, is it's allowed us to create a thermal policy, a thermal comfort policy, which I actually only just presented to the energy management team yesterday, and we hope to bring that to the uh, ULT subcommittee on sustainability in the coming months and it sets out what's acceptable and what's not acceptable for our staff and our students and it varies greatly and any day you can walk into the library and you'll see people in shorts and t-shirts and next to them you see people in jumpers so it's really a personal thing and we're trying to find a sweet spot where we can say you know we will supply we will heat the buildings to x if that doesn't suit you you either dress up or you're dressed down appropriately um, it sounds really easy as I say it here, but I can see it's going to be quite difficult to do. So that was a big change. And to have the government behind and to have that mandate and to have that instruction from the government was was really um, a motivator for for doing that. You know. Was that a short time, time frame that you had to make those changes from receiving that mandate to implementing the changes on the ground? Yeah, it was, um, it was almost instantaneous. First of all, when they issued the instruction, it was kind of, you know, you should do this because it's good. And then within about three or four weeks, it says, no, you must do this. And so we were on that route already. And the engineering services team know the buildings like the back of the hand and know the heating systems. So we've built a lot of expertise and knowledge of when we need to heat buildings, how they're occupied, how people live in them. So we kind of really matched, closely matched our heating schedules to how the buildings are lived. And we only just, as I said, we only just had our quarterly energy review yesterday. 
and our gas consumption is down by about one gigawatt on our norm, which for us is huge. So it was 19 degrees. That's the change that now is the standard temperature. What was it before? It was. It, it varied anywhere from 20 to 21, and it, it varied much so. On, on we were chasing our tails a lot on occupancy feedback, and people would say, no, it's too cold or it's too warm. And, you know, you would have instances where you go down and you change temperature in one office and the next person would call and say, no, that's too cold for me. But it's the same space. So, but I think what I have noticed, particularly this year, is the understanding of our staff and our students that there's, you know, there was a, an energy crisis um, and now there's a climate emergency on. And, and they understand that, you know, it's not being tight-fisted or ham-fisted and it's not kind of saving money. It's actually... You know, it's the right thing to do from an environmental point of view. And that's a big change. And I remember a few people of staff have said to me, what made them think about, or not not think about, but what made them accept when the, when the space isn't really comfortable, maybe it's 19, 20 degrees, they're saying, well, I want it 21. It's acceptable to them to put on a jumper because they were working at home during COVID and they've seen their own energy bills and they weren't heating their house while they were sitting in the sitting room or in the kitchen or in their office they were just had a heater in the office and they were watching what they were doing. And I think a lot of them have come to the realisation that it's, you know, we have to manage our resources more effectively. It's not always going to be perfect, but we try to maintain a minimum comfort level. And speaking of COVID, I suppose we're, are we three years since it began, 2020 now? Yeah. I'm sure that had a big impact on energy and UCC. Could you tell us about kind of what the, the usage was like during the lockdowns and has it bounced back to those levels that it was before? Yeah. So we saw about a, a 35% reduction over, over, let's say, our academic year. So campuses closed in March, kind of reopened again in June with research activities. And by the end of September, with an annual reduction of about 30%. It coincided, I suppose, with the actually end of the heating season. So we turned off the heating systems or severely reduced them. We had to provide heating periodically just to maintain the fabric of the estate and the fabric of the buildings. So there was always people from the states in. And the big thing that it allowed us to do was to get a, a sense of the baseline when there was no one on campus. And then when the research activities started coming. And it really kind of focused on lab activities and the research. So it gave us a real... We always suspected labs and we always, you know, done a lot of audits on, on laboratory spaces. But there was nothing else happening, only labs. And they were responsible for about 60% of our energy use. And the other thing that happened within the lab community was people that were working in these research spaces all of a sudden saw all these deliveries at the reception and realised they were for them because they were the only people on campus. And a frightening statistic was, I think our waste levels only went down by 40%. No, that's 22,000 people going off campus and maybe 600 people being on, and our waste only went down by 40% because of the amount of consumables that we consume. And that kind of inspired the lab community to get together and we're trying to get a, a green lab programme leaf off the ground and that's probably the genesis of why people wanted to do something because they saw it and they were the only people there that's one of really positive bounce out of COVID the second thing the next year then our energy use increased significantly and then that was in line with how we operated our building so we were ventilating two hours before the building was open and two hours after they were closed so our energy use actually shot up significantly um, and this year thankfully we've brought things back under control we've invested in our ventilation systems um, to make our areas more comfortable and still provide fresh air, fresh clean air to our staff and students. And we've reduced our time schedules because we now have a, a more handle on our ventilation systems. So our energy use is reduced significantly based on our COVID. 
post-COVID. And when I look back to 2018, 2019, which is our baseline period, we're down by about 11% now. That is a big change. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, I'd love to be able to say I know exactly where that 11% <laughs> was, but it's not. It's it's the actions that people take every day um, across the estate. Yes, we've done some projects. We've put in heat pumps. The engineering service team have changed out all the external lighting. But they don't account for the reduction that we're seeing. We're seeing it by, you know, people doing the right thing, switching off, thinking about how they use energy. Um, so it's been really a positive experience. And in terms of thinking about our energy usage, one thing that maybe we haven't touched on yet is water consumption. And is that an aspect of, I suppose, energy that is often overlooked when we talk about gas and electricity consumption? Yeah, it is. It is. It's a big area of concern because water is plentiful, right? But you're reading articles and, and you know, you're reading news lines and, and, you know, water is, you know, I can survive without light, I can survive without electricity, I can't survive without water. And I, there was a great sketch that I saw a comedian do, you know, he said in 20 years' time, he says he's going to do a sketch where, you know, yeah, water was everywhere. We washed our cars with it, we watered our flowers with it. Oh, it's fantastic. And, um, yeah, water is a big concern. We've done a lot of work on that in the last four or five years. But it's really difficult to make savings on water because one is the market doesn't price water as a, as a really valuable commodity. It's electricity is, and gas costs is probably, you know, I would say eight times the amount of money that we pay for water. So the focus is on, on, on energy, on gas and electricity. We've done a water stewardship program and we have a lot of systems in place now where we monitor water use on a daily basis so we can pick up leaks and significant. And then it's a case of going after each building and seeing where water is used. It's really difficult though because water is, you know, it's really difficult to control, really difficult to manage and it's really difficult to get data on. But we've got a really good plan in the next two or three years um, through the Earth Stewart Water Certified water, water Stewardship Holders. So we've mapped out a plan over the next three years to get a really good handle on our water consumption. So definitely kind of an ongoing It is, challenge. yeah, it is. And it's personally for me, it's, mm-hmm. it's one that I want to, you know, I want to get our water management practices and our water management awarenesses mm-hmm. up to where we are in energy and up to where we are in the green campus and up to where we are in sustainability. It's, it's a really important thing. Are there any examples of good practice that we can find in other universities that we could take inspiration from? I think a lot of universities are the same. Mm. Uh, you know, they're, they're, fighting with res- they're fighting for resources. So we've done a, f- a good few things, actually. So in some of our recent buildings, so a lot of issues with water, a lot of taps and there's a lot of outlets, so things can be left on or things can be leaking. So in some of our newer buildings now, we've put in kind of automatic shut-off. So, you know, when the building is closed and the alarm goes on, the water supply to that building shuts down. So even if there is something leaking, we don't we we conserve. Other things how we've done is we've created um, we've put water metering onto our electricity platform. So we have alarm limits and, and and levels on our water use across the campus. So when we when we see a, a peak or we see something happening, we're alerted to it and we go investigate it. And you can kind of very easily see what the drivers are. And the drivers are people. You know, like the Bull Light, you know, is, is our biggest consumer at the moment because the exam studies are going on. And you can see the water consumption increase significantly on that. So we're then doing things like, you know, changing out our appliances within the, the bathrooms, you know, not to be talking about toilets, but, you know, just reducing the water flushes, you know, reducing the amount of water we use, slowing down the rates of the water coming from taps, really simple things that don't require investment, but just require time. So, And that's what a lot of universities are doing. We have a few... Western Gateway Building is an incredible example of water conservation. They've got a, a building that's built in 2008. They have a heat pump there, 
um, that they use a ground source so they use a well and when that water gets used by the heat pump instead of spitting it back out to the river it actually fills up the tanks that is used to flush the toilets because the building was built for that so you know they're they're recycling water down there the Glockson would be actually another example of that so we use water to heat the buildings but when we're finished with that water we transfer the heat from it we actually fill up the tanks that are used to flush the buildings so a lot of good things happening there um, and we'll have we'll carry on that into our new buildings in terms of bringing in where rainwater harvesting and things like that yeah i guess it's kind of a an aspect of energy that you wouldn't think of at first especially kind of i guess for students along campus i think i remember you telling me that there was this, like a toilet somewhere that wouldn't stop flushing and it was like it wasted a huge huge amount of water do you remember what the stats were on it or oh i think it was like um, it's like i think it was about 400 liters uh, an hour it was just yeah, this thing going you know and uh, it wasn't a huge cost from a commercial point of view but when you think of the environmental cost it was mad isn't it mm-hmm. You know, all that water has to get treated mm. and cleaned and, and pumped and brought up here. And then it just goes down to the ground. So that's that's the that's where the motivation comes on water conservation for us. Yeah, I guess with, you know, we were talking about COVID and that was obviously such a, a difficult and stressful time for so many people, obviously with the lockdowns and the virus. But it did make us think about how we behave, I think, and how we, I guess, interact with nature when we we're all stuck at home and I guess how we are using our resources and what we're wasting. Um, so I guess if that was kind of a, not a positive thing that came out of lockdown, but I guess a new perspective on things, yeah. which I think has carried through in terms of just biodiversity loss and the climate crisis. And when I think of you know climate change and biodiversity loss and the energy crisis, it always comes back to that systemic change that we need. And I know UCC has a number of targets that it has to meet in terms of uh, reducing our carbon emissions that have been set by the government. Could you tell us about those? Yeah. So Ireland is a very ambitious climate action plan. From an energy perspective, what they've asked us to do or what they've told us to achieve is a 51% reduction in our carbon emissions. And for me, as an energy manager, that's going to be a massive task. But for me as a citizen, it's a want. It's, you know, uh, we, we need these targets. And, and there's a, a word in the, in the target that's called absolute. And it's the most important word that they put into that target for us. And because it, what, it's set, what it's telling the public sector and what it's telling us, I don't care how much you're going to grow. I don't care about the buildings that you're going to build. And I don't care about the, your increase in activity. You need to make an absolute reduction. So that's a real hard target. So whereas previous targets were based on, well, if you've grown by X, we're going to offset that by Y, or we'll give you a, we'll give you a kind of a bump up on that. This is absolute. So we've identified... 23 separate projects um, it sounds really easy and it's about a 40 odd million euro investment required to do that and the problem is is, is time we've got to get there by 2030 and um, we're hopefully embarking on the enterprise deep retrofit this year supported by the HEA pathfinder project and that's going to take us two years two summers to do and that's one building you know we've, we've 130 buildings in our state so it's not the approach that we can take for everything to meet the target so our plan includes a lot of targeted investments, similar to the rally building. You know, what's producing the emissions? It's typically our gas system. They're trying to get us off our gas. So we're making targeted investments in our heating plant to change that out for electrification. And as the grid becomes more renewable by 2030, when they're talking about 70-80% on the grid, then that makes us more uh, less carbon intensive. And we have a target to be carbon neutral by 2040. Mm. Do you think we're going to reach that? Uh, it's going to be really difficult. 
it sounds uh, it's it's a lovely catchphrase and it's it's really easy to say it, but I I know the president, you know, committed he is to it, and how how committed he is to sustainability. So it's up to us to to meet that target, and that's our twenty thirty plan. While the focus is on twenty thirty, it's actually enabling us to meet those targets of the twenty forty and the, and the target that the government set for twenty fifty because we have a rolling investment program to how we can decarbonize our buildings. But you mentioned you know system changes and, and systematic change we're putting money into it but you've got to ask yourself is that system change or is that just doing things more efficiently and that's where you know you have this conundrum about growth I do anyway personally and how can we can continue to grow and that's not system change and I, I was at a talk yesterday and you know has the climate crisis affected UCC I asked that question. It hasn't really had it. Has it, has it affected anything that we've done, how we operate? Probably made us more efficient. But did it stop us doing, did it change the system how, that we operate in? And it hasn't. We've been able to, you know, invest. We've been able to get funding. We've been able to do the stuff we always wanted to do as a university. And that's not system change. So what is system change from a university perspective, you know? Yeah, I find every talk I, I give or every you know chapter of my PhD thesis that I'm writing it always comes back to the the conflict between our our systems and our economic systems and ecological sustainability I don't think they're compatible in their current form um, but then how do you deconstruct such a widespread and powerful system and also there's so many people who benefit from the existence of this capitalistic model gives them power and gives them money why would they want to to deconstruct that yeah and i it's what i always come back to and i obviously don't have any answers on how we can kind of pull this all apart and rebuild something more sustainable and more people centric rather than kind of the top one percent but i think until we do that we will never have true sustainability it'll always just be this this target or this goal that's just out of reach Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a small bit off topic for yeah. many people, but it's all related, isn't it? And, yeah. and that's what that's what I think that's what UCC does here. You know, I was focused on energy, but you're exposed then to, you know, the courses that are happening here, the you know, the societies that are here, the engagement, the green campus programme. And it broadens your horizon, you know, and some people come to it from a biodiversity angle, other people come from an energy or other people come from a waste. But I'm I'm doing all this thing on energy conservation, energy management. But that's only one part of it, you know. We have to, we, I can't keep making our buildings more efficient so we can do more stuff in them and, 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 you know, continue to grow. And, like, you look at what UCC has tried to achieve and, you know, there's a, you, you take a step back sometimes, there's incredible achievements that have been made in UCC that, you know, a lot of people have been part of before me and, and, and even when I'm here, you know, the team in buildings in the States, you know, the societies and the student body. Um, it wasn't easy and I, I would say it wasn't without controversy. Um, and like even just look at the single plastics coming in, it's the right thing to do, isn't it? You know, it's the right thing to stop consuming a quarter of a million or half a million cups. But yet we see disposable cups still being brought into campus, you know. So it's kind of, it's really difficult, it's really hard, even though it's the right thing to do. You know, so we have a bit to go, and we have a bit to go on system change, I think. Yeah, for sure. But it's when once you learn about these issues, you see how everything is interconnected and while you could be really strong on energy you have to be really strong on on everything else as well to have that that maximum impact and those positive changes as well 
And yeah. I know you mentioned some of the projects that are going on. Are there any particular projects that are coming up to reduce energy consumption on campus that you think we should know about? Yeah, we have, um, we've, uh, Chris and the team have just finished the external lighting, which they've probably reduced the load by about 75%. And again, just the, the university that we're in, you know, the lights that they've selected are all less than 3,000 Kelvin, so they're approved by dark sky enthusiasts, but they also have a, a light colour that is, is not harmful to the insects and the biodiversity in and around the campus. So it's amazing, you know, because you're in this space and you see talks and you see research taking place and, and we try to see how can we bring that into our practice and that's some of the great things on the Green Campus Forum. People that are working in research spaces are highlighting issues to us that aren't mainstream now, but will be in five or six years' time. So we're able to act on that. It does. It sounds boring, but lighting upgrades is probably you know it's it's consistent. It's a it's a thing that Chris and the team are always doing. Every time they go in, they're they're looking at how they can make the lighting more efficient. So if fittings fail. They've got a model and a stock type of every type of fitting on campus, so they now got an LED replacement for that. But they also reduce the number of of light fittings in there. We have the pharmacy building. Hopefully, this summer we'll be putting in a air source heat pump, and that should decarbonize that building and take about should supply ninety percent of the heat, um, and that's part of our Pathfinder project. In Brookfield, uh, Peter and the team have got a really novel project actually to put in a high temperature heat pump which is something that we don't have to provide domestic water for the uh, nursing uh, stations and things down there so that's going to be a really interesting project because domestic water is where we have to get the water up to 60 degrees is quite difficult to do with a heat pump um, so that's our first foray into that you have the enterprise project which I spoke about the deep retrofit um, so that's an external insulation replacing all the windows and putting in ventilation systems and only two weeks ago you might have heard or last week that we got part funding for the cane and that's going to be a really exciting project that's a, a really energy focused project the cane accounts for about 12 percent of our energy use and it's a really interesting project we've done a lot of studies on that from an energy we've done a great study on on the carbon the embodied carbon of reusing what we have versus you know what how we construct and on that topic we're hoping that the mardike uh, dressing rooms there was an extension down down the mardike a high performance gym that was our first foray into timber frame construction. So um, we've done a full carbon mapping and uh, embodied carbon study on that. And the results look really, really promising. So we're hoping to share some of that over the summer. You're a busy man, Pat. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> and I suppose we've talking a lot about ECC and we touched on system change. Kind of in the broader context of Ireland and Irish society, from your perspective and your experiences as throughout the years and as energy manager in UCC what do you think the government needs to be doing to to tackle say the energy crisis and I suppose that interconnected the climate emergency as well mm. they have a lot on their plate don't they and you look at the housing crisis that's connected to really isn't it as well to you know climate justice and, and the climate crisis and I'm doing the sustainability and enterprise course over in the futures lab actually and, and one of the assignments that I have to do is on using derelict and vacant buildings for decarbonisation of Ireland's housing stock and um, it's really really complicated it's really really expensive and I think we should be asking ourselves what we can do to encourage the government to to be brave um, and to have you know the belief that they can you know change our society to make it more environmental and and there's a few things that stick out of me you know like Leo Varadkar when he said one time he was going to eat less meat he got pillared for, for saying that statement you know he had to clarify that and 
every week you see Eamon Ryan seems to be pillared for saying some statement and two weeks later it comes out, well actually, you know, it does make sense. Um, so why would politicians be encouraged to, you know, to change when, when, when that's out there? I think it's up to us. Uh, it's up to us that when the politicians come knocking on our door to say, I need to see this change, we need to see this change to give them the belief that, you know, because they're, get, they're about getting votes and about getting their party into power. I think that's what we need to do. And once we have put a government in there that is motivated and and that is empowered by society, then I think the transition will be a lot easier. That's something that we forget, the the power that we have within our communities, within um, our groups, and that we could mobilise and demand such changes tomorrow yeah. if we wanted yeah. to. You know, I wasn't following all the kind of the recent developments in France in terms of their striking, and I really admire their ability to just mobilise and shut things down and demand the changes that they want. And I so wish we had the kind of culture of, I suppose, mobilisation and getting out to the streets the way they did. Because I remember the 2019 climate strike was huge, you know, with thousands of people on, in, you know, the streets of Cork. But after that, we never had such a, a huge turnout again. It was like a one-time kind of blip. Mm. And then the following strikes were just kind of smaller and smaller. So I don't know how we can maintain that kind of connection and that yeah. almost emotional connection to to get out onto the streets to man that action. To demand that action, because mm. that's what's required. And, 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 you know, like politicians will... will maybe naively, I, I think, politicians only react to the constituents and, and you know, what, what people need. And if it's important and it continues to be important and it, it continues to grow importance, then, you know, there's more and more, they're more empowered to bring in these policies. And I look at you, Neve, and I've and, and worked with you for the last three or four years and really inspired by the stuff that you're doing. But I look at my own daughter, you know, and like her generation, she's 13 or 14, you know, they're all over this, absolutely all over this, you know. And I think that's probably the biggest change that we're probably going to see that generation that are coming through is, you know, they, these will demand these things and, empower, you know, they'd be empowered to look for these things. So that gives me some hope. Yeah. I think that's a nice note to, to wrap up our, our episode on. And just our last question, which we ask everybody that comes mm-hmm. on the podcast is, what's your favourite place on campus? Okay. As the energy manager, there's a few roofs that are nice <laughs> actually because they're quiet. But I, as a general rule, anywhere where I can see the river uh, is really lovely and and you've seen the studies that, that come back from, you know, uh, nature, it's in your success and, and the green spaces that we have on campus. And that's a, a testament to the work that Jack and Barry do. And, and it's amazing what goes on behind the scenes, you know, what they have, they hold, and they won't give it over to any concrete plinth or any car park space. Anywhere I can see the river, um, Western Gateway is particularly nice, actually. Uh, they've got some lovely um, uh, vegetation down there. And then the lower ground and the, and the bridge thing that nobody thought that we actually needed in 2016 but it turned out to be a fantastic space isn't it yeah it's a, it's a good answer i don't think we've had anyone reference the western gateway building okay. <laughs> <laughs> our roof <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming to talk to us today pat it was really great to get your insights no, my, my pleasure Leah. thank you and as always you can get in touch with us at greencampus at ucc.ie and keep up to date with everything sustainability related on campus you can follow us on social media on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. So thanks for listening.